start a new series this morning. Yes. Sorry about that. Better? Cool. Um, sometimes I forget if I turn it on and then I turn it off. Um, turn with me to Acts, the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. It's the fifth book over. If you've got a table of contents, you can use that. If you've got a phone, you can turn, click, swipe, tap, or whatever you do. We're going to be in the book of Acts for a little bit, I think, through the spring. We've got some things going on in between. I'm not preaching every week. Uh, but we are starting a series on the book of Acts, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1 this morning. I'll give you a second to get there. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Sometimes with a really good tale. The story feels like it never ends. My mind, uh, when I think about that, goes to the Lord of the Rings trilogy that ends with Frodo leaving behind his fellow hobbits and setting sail with Gandalf to the little-known undying lands, or with Samwise Gamgee returning to the Shire and Hobbiton to make a life with his wife and children. And whether home or abroad or whether strange or mundane, you're left with this clear impression that both had many more tales and adventures that could fill a bookshelf or a Blu-ray cabinet, and the tale is over, but there's a sense in which your imagination allows the story to continue. You might be forgiven for thinking that the Christian story ended with Jesus. That is, you might think that with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven that it's over, that he was a major figure, but now he's gone, and now Christians just worship him and have built a religion around him. But that would be a misunderstanding of Jesus' story. The book of Acts is a continuation of Jesus' story. In early 2019, I I started a long, year-long series on the gospel according to Luke. And, And Luke and Acts are two volumes of really the same work by a 
Greek physician of the same name, Luke. And, and both volumes are addressed to a certain Theophilus, about whom we know nothing from history. But I suggested a couple years ago a tantalizing possibility that I still think has a lot of merit. It's been hit on by some scholars. And it's speculated that Luke was in part writing a legal brief to someone in the administration of the Roman Emperor Nero, namely Theophilus. And the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome while waiting to be put on trial before Nero, which is a strange place to end a story. And it's a theory, like I said, that makes a lot of sense of some of the details that we have in these books. It's ultimately unprovable. It's ultimately unprovable. But that said, Luke is clearly writing more than just a background about Jesus and how that led to Paul's imprisonment. From the opening words of his gospel in Luke chapter 1, it's clear that he doesn't just want to inform. Like, hey, Theophilus, these are the things that happened. He also wants to persuade. He believes that we can be confident about the details of Jesus' life and work, and he wants us to put our faith in him. And I believe that that's still the controlling thought as we enter the book of Acts. Luke wants the reader to be absolutely convinced by the sure facts of the matter, the history, the what happened. But he also wants readers to respond to those facts with Christian faith. As Luke kicks off volume two, what we call the book of Acts, the message of verses one through 14 is this. The risen Jesus has only just begun to work. The risen Jesus has only just begun to work. And this introduction to his second volume has three key ideas. That Jesus has been at work, that Jesus will be at work, and we must be ready for Jesus to work. So let me dig into that. Verses 1 through 5 are something of a recap of the Gospel of Luke. It's sort of the last time on the story of Jesus. And he's mostly reminding Theophilus of what he wrote at the end of volume 1. He's reminding Theophilus that Jesus has been at work. And so he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now when I say Jesus was at work, I mean Jesus did stuff and that Jesus taught stuff. That's sort of the two categories that Luke uses, doing and teaching. And that's a pretty good synopsis of the life of Jesus. You know, in a 2020 survey of American religious convictions done by Ligonier Ministries, 58% of Americans agree with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, the idea that Jesus is God is, of course, I hope you know, one of the central beliefs, if not the central belief of historic Christianity. But the majority of Americans are people who reject this central belief but still think Jesus was a great teacher. So that's the majority of Americans. 
Which is interesting, that it's one of the most enduring legacies of Jesus that no, almost no one denies. From his masterful storytelling, to his radical ethics, to his ability to outwit a hostile interrogator, or his penchant for challenging a person's preconceptions, Jesus was a great teacher. But Jesus also did many works, which were quite frankly miraculous. He cast out demons, he healed chronic illnesses, congenital disabilities, and permanent injuries. He commanded nature, both animate fish and inanimate forces like wind and water. He even raised the dead. All of these are recorded by Luke. In short, Jesus was not just a great teacher. He taught that he was the Messiah, God's special king, and the unique son of God. He belonged in a different category. And so Luke reminds Theophilus that his first volume left off when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I'll say more about that in a moment, but this is precisely where Luke's gospel ends in chapter 24 and where his second volume begins. So in mentioning this, Luke is bringing up two very other important characters, the Holy Spirit and the apostles. The Holy Spirit was spoken of in Luke's first volume. In fact, Luke mentions him by that name 13 times. He mentions him in other ways as well. And that's more than twice as much as Matthew or Mark or John by that name. But, but he, the, the Holy Spirit, is still mostly a background character in Luke's gospel. But that name Holy Spirit appears 45 times in Acts. We get the sense that he's suddenly way more in the forefront of the narrative. And so Luke wants to remind Theophilus, remember that Holy Spirit I mentioned to you a few times. I want to put him right back squarely in the front of your mind. And second, those apostles. In Luke chapter 6, Luke recorded that Jesus chose 12 of his disciples to be apostles. It was the 12 apostles, not the 12 disciples. All right? Jesus had lots of disciples. He had 12 apostles. Apostle was a technical term for a person who was sent out with the full authority of the sender. The closest analogy that we have in modern society is probably the idea of an ambassador. So, for example, Natalie Brown is the U.S. ambassador to Uganda. And she generally has the ability to speak on behalf of the United States government with the authority of the United States government. The U.S. government cannot be everywhere, so she represents or represents the United States to Ugandans. So these 12 men are authorized representatives of Jesus. They're called to speak on his behalf, and they're called to speak with his authority. And in Luke's first volume, these men come up quite a bit, but they're often in the general mix of the disciples, and so they're also very much secondary players. However, they are going to have much more significant roles in volume two. And then finally, in this recap, Luke mentions the very last thing that Jesus commanded his apostles, to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise from the Father. And that's a pretty good synopsis of the last couple paragraphs of the end of volume one. So, if Theophilus has taken some time off since reading Luke's first volume, or if it's been 
two years since you heard a sermon series on Luke's Gospel, Volume 1. That's the recap. Jesus was a powerful teacher who also did powerful works that testified to the fact that he was something greater than a mere teacher, but he was actually God himself. And things ended with Jesus commanding his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. And then Jesus is taken up. Jesus, Theophilus, remember, had been at work. Which brings us kind of to the second idea in this passage. So Luke now zooms back in on that final exchange between Jesus and his apostles. And he provides some new details. And the, the implication is that Jesus has only just begun to work. Luke recounts that at that final meeting together in the flesh, the apostles asked Jesus a question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now we just finished a series here on the, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And a recurring theme in those books is a restoration of the kingdom of Israel at the end of all things. And all the, the apostles and the other disciples often struggled with understanding who Jesus was and what his mission was. They now, at this point, clearly understood that Jesus was Messiah. He was God's promised king. And they also understood that this kingdom would not be brought about by a military conquest with, with King Jesus leading victory over the foes of Israel. Jesus had taught that the kingdom wasn't something a person could see, that they could point to, like, oh, it's that land over there, or it's that people group over here. Instead, the kingdom was something that was invisible to the naked eye, something that existed among people. It wasn't that the land, it wasn't the land conquered by a king, but the kingdom was the hearts that had bowed in submission to a king. It was a kingdom entered into by faith in King Jesus. The apostles had seen Jesus crucified. They had seen him killed on a Roman torture device. They had seen him resurrected from the dead. Death could not hold him. He truly was the king. And so it's not surprising that they might have expected the full restoration promised by the prophets so many centuries before at that time. And they are asking Jesus, is this the end? Are you going to wrap things up now? Are you going to bring the kingdom in all of its glory to God's people and put an end to all evil and all wickedness and judge the living and the dead? And the first part of Jesus' answer is, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is saying, he's saying that they're right, that he is the king, and that he will bring about the fullness of the kingdom, but he's also saying that some things are not for human knowledge. Some things aren't for human knowledge. And nevertheless, like clockwork, there are people out there predicting the end of the world for 2021. And Jesus has said clearly, they don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen to those false prophets. But, Jesus has a big but here. But you will receive power. 
but is Jesus' way of saying, here's what should concern you. You don't need to be concerned about the end of the world, the end of days, the defeat of evil, or the finality of my kingdom. I'm going to tell you what you should be concerned about, and you're going to need power for it. Power is a word, this, there's a lot of words for power, but this word almost always is used by Luke to refer to God's power, and usually, specifically, Jesus' power to perform miracles and to be a great teacher. But it's also something that Jesus has sovereignty over. So in Luke 9, he sends out the 12 apostles to be his representatives to expand the mission. And that meant that they needed to teach authoritatively and also to do miracles. And so Luke writes, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So the apostles knew something of this power that Jesus was speaking about. They had first seen it with their own eyes for the better part of three years. And then they also had times where they experienced it themselves when Jesus had sent them on mission. So they have a taste of this. But now Jesus is saying that that power would come when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. In fact, he had called it the promise of the Father. And, and while Luke speaks of the Holy Spirit more than his fellow gospel writers, he's not alone in recording this promise. As Jesus was preparing to leave his disciples, Matthew recorded, Matthew recorded, I will be with you always. John recorded, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. But the power that they will receive when the spirit comes upon them was not so that they could leave, live great lives. It was not power so that they could conquer their enemies. It was not power to make their problems disappear. Instead, the power was connected to a mission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The idea of bearing witness is quickly going to become a major theme in the book of Acts as, as Jesus' followers are going to repeatedly obey this command by the power of the Spirit. They're witnesses to who Jesus is and what he has done, and just as importantly, the significance of those facts. See, at the end of volume one, Luke records some other details of what was presumably the same conversation, details that he can assume Theophilus knows by now. So here are Jesus' words at the end of the book of Luke. Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So consider that for a minute. They are witnesses to all of it. But there are three things that Jesus highlights here that are especially important. 
first that he suffered and died. That's why the cross is sort of the international symbol of Christianity. Jesus was arrested at the impetus of the Jewish religious leaders by Roman soldiers who were not known for their tact and gentle handling. He was then beaten. He was mocked by Herods, the Roman puppet king, by his soldiers. He was then whipped and he was flogged at the direction of the Roman governor, Pilate. He was hung up on a piece of wood with nails driven through his wrists and feet so that he could slowly suffocate as his lungs struggled to fill with air. He died. His death was not a footnote. His death was an essential part of the story for at least two reasons. What happened next and why? Which is coincidentally, or not coincidentally, um, Jesus' next two points. See, what happened next, second, was that he rose from the dead. You see, Jesus' death was important because without death, he couldn't have risen from the dead. Jesus was dead. He was dead, dead. He had died after being on a Roman cross at the hands of professional executioners whose job was to ensure that prisoners died. He was stabbed with a spear, likely through the heart, to double-check that he had died. He was buried in a tomb, and that tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers to ensure that no one could steal the body. Jesus really died. There was no mortal recovery from what he sustained. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose. Now, if Jesus didn't die, that's not an impressive fact. But if he was dead, and he most assuredly was dead, then the fact that he appeared alive again and demonstrated his aliveness repeatedly to his followers means something extraordinary happened. Jesus had defeated death. He took death on toe-to-toe and won. And his death made forgiveness of sins possible. Sin is treason against God. That's a shorthand definition for it. And sin must be paid for. Otherwise, God would be unjust. If somebody gets away with a crime, especially a high crime, it would be unjust, wouldn't it? And the penalty for sin, the payment for sin is death. But in going to the cross and dying himself, Jesus paid the death price in behalf of sinners like me. And Jesus being without sin, it meant he was without guilt. And so justice had no claim on him. So what he did was not to benefit his own standing. He didn't die for his own sake. But he died to the benefit of others. He defeated death precisely because he had already defeated sin. 
and his resurrection from the dead was the proof. Death had no claim on him. So now, thirdly, the why forgiveness can be preached in his name. In his name, Jesus says, because he is the only one who can offer it. Because he's the only one who's purchased it. All men and all women are now called to repent, to turn their backs on their old way of life and embrace the path of following Jesus, to become his disciples, his followers. And those who make this turn receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And it's this that Jesus' apostles and his other disciples were to be witnesses of. And they needed power for this task because it wasn't always going to be easy. See, Jesus' followers would literally follow Jesus, not metaphorically so much. And as we go through this book, we'll see that they also were mocked and they also were beaten and they also were imprisoned and they also were sometimes homeless and they often also were sometimes forced to go without the basic necessities of life and they also many times were executed for their witness. Some of us followers know all too well that the life of witness is hard and we are weak. We're scared. We're intimidated. We're consumed by the shiny things of this life and they all get in the way of being a witness, of speaking about Jesus. So, shameless plug, we're going to be talking about how to be effective witnesses during our Sunday class time through the end of the year. And we'll talk about why this is hard, and, and we're going to talk about really, really practical ways to communicate this message. So that'll be 9.20 on Sundays. But we need power from the Holy Spirit to do this. It's not a power that is within us. Because what's in us desires to protect our reputation protect our social standing, to protect our belongings, to protect our lives. That's how we're kind of hardwired. And we need a supernatural power to overcome that. And so it's a spirit-empowered commission that is given to Jesus' followers to be as witnesses near and far and to the end of the earth. In fact, this phrase Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth almost becomes sort of a table of contents of the book of Acts as we'll see at this point though Luke records Jesus ascension into heaven for a second time but here we have an additional detail of, of two men apparently angels who tell the disciples asking them why they're staring at the sky which seems like a strange question right if You've just seen Jesus, and you've just seen him risen from the dead, and now he's ascending to the heavens. Why wouldn't you be staring? But I think the angel's words were tantamount to saying, there's nothing more to see here. Stop wasting your time. Instead, they encouraged the men, this Jesus 
who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the king will return. He has ascended. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty. He is crowned in glory and all power. All authority has been given to him. So don't worry looking for him now. He will return and you won't miss it. And that is hope and that is encouragement for the task that's at hand. So with the command of the king and the promise of the king's return, the apostles are commissioned to be witnesses. The last time they received power from Jesus, they were extending his ministry. So this coming power will be nothing short of Jesus' continuing work. In Luke's first volume, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. But in this volume, he will deal with all that Jesus continued to do and teach after the day when he was taken up. Only now, the work will be carried out by his spirit-empowered followers, a work that continues to this day. Jesus has still working, he is still at work, and he will continue to work. And that brings us to sort of the final section of this introduction. The last three verses show us that the apostles' response to what they had just seen and heard was this. They departed the Mount of Olives, and they returned to Jerusalem just like he told them. They were obedient. And they went to what Luke calls the upper room where they were staying. We don't know where this was. I'm not sure that it's of great significance where it was. They had been in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of Passover. That was the holiday over which Jesus was executed. And as visitors, this was a great pilgrimage festival. So Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem for that. So, so housing was at a premium. And we know that during the time that Jesus was with them during the Passover, they stayed outside of Jerusalem. And they'd walk in every morning because it was crowded. And now that the Passover has passed, but they're still hanging out in Jerusalem, but they're not from Jerusalem, they apparently had to find the first century version of a hotel. And maybe they changed their accommodations to something closer to the heart of the city. So they're there, and, and Luke gives us an accounting of who is there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James of Alphaeus, Simon, and Judas of James. And if you're keeping count, that's 11 names. And it's a quiet and subtle and sobering reminder that someone is missing. That other Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed Jesus and led the authorities to him. But the mission wasn't limited to those men. Lest we think that this mission was just the, the calling and the prerogative of certain specially called individuals, just, you know, really important apostles, the guys maybe we pay to go do ministry. No, the mission wasn't limited to those 11 men. The women were there. That's, that's vague, but we... We know that there were a large number of women who followed Jesus, some of them 
who even supported his ministry financially. And we can guess at some of their names, uh, maybe Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, maybe Mary Magdalene, perhaps Mary, the mother of James. Mary was a common name in first century. Maybe Joanna was there. And who knows how many other women whose names have been lost to history, but whom we will know personally one day in heaven. And then there's members of Jesus' family, his mother and brothers, it says, which is interesting because we know that Jesus, by the way, had sisters also. But, but Luke's words are not specific, so it's, it's hard to know if he means just Jesus' brothers or both Jesus' brothers and sisters. It, it could mean either one here. But, but during parts of his ministry, we know that his siblings had often been skeptical of the things that he was doing. And even his mother, even Mary, had shown reservations about some of his ministry. But here they were now, convinced that Jesus was the rightful king of creation. So what are they doing together in this upper room? Luke writes that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were praying with one accord. Being of one mind and especially being in prayer are two regular features of God's new people in the book of Acts. It's what God's people do when they are waiting for Jesus to work. They pray. It's been noted that many of the seemingly largest and most significant works of Jesus in the book of Acts take place in the immediate context of Jesus' followers praying. Could it be that we do not see Jesus at work in our lives, in our city, in our country, in our world, in no small part because our prayer is small. I've been growing more and more convicted of this fact that we see not because we pray not. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Matthew 21, verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Mark 11, verse 24. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Luke 11. Verse 10. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, 24. So you sense a, a pattern? Now I don't want to leave you with the idea that you should pray for that new announced hybrid Lamborghini Countach. The, the context of Jesus' teaching on prayer leaves little doubt that the guarantees that he offers are dependent 
upon us praying in accordance with his heart and with his mission. But nonetheless, these are enormous promises, aren't they? What do you think happened when the disciples prayed in Acts? Some of you know. What do you think would happen if we, at Gateway Church, were single-mindedly devoted to prayer in light of Jesus' mission? What might happen if we prayed? We have a prayer meeting tonight. It's nothing special. We gather, we pray. What might change change if we showed up? What might change if prayer meetings weren't on even numbered months, but every month, every week, every night? What might happen if we prayed? What if prayer were the heartbeat of this church? Might we see Jesus work? Why not show up tonight? Because the risen Jesus has only just begun to work. The question then is, will that work include us? Well, there's a work that we must do while we're waiting to see Jesus work. And that's coming together with one mind in prayer. Praying after Christ's heart. Praying for his mission. Praying for his will to be done. The risen Jesus has only just begun to work. Let's see his work here. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for not being a praying people. Forgive us for being so convinced that we have our lives together, that we have our mess in order, that we don't need your help. And forgive us, Father, that our prayers are so small. That we don't believe on you for big things. We just hope that you come through on the small things that make tomorrow better to make next week a little easier. Give us a mind to be captivated by your kingdom and by your eternity and by things that don't pass away, that don't fade with this world. Let us be captivated by your mission to be witnesses, your witnesses to Cleveland Cuyahoga, to Northeast Ohio, to the ends of the earth.
may we not grow weary in praying to you. And let us see your work here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, if you will, stand as we worship the risen Jesus.